How's it going, folks? How's it going? I'm Brother Matthew, and this is Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And today is Saturday, and our tradition, uh, as we, whenever we generally do broadcast on Saturdays, is to do a Q&A day. And uh, we do a little bit more of a special one today. We're going to be looking at some things at uh, supposed contradictions in the Bible. Now, a few years back, I, uh, I was doing an awful lot of different uh, debates on different platforms, open-air debates even with people, um, and I, I stand for and defend the Word of God, and I debate in defense of Scripture, and I study apologetics, all these things, so I come across all kinds of different people uh, different backgrounds, belief systems, and whatnot, from atheists to Muslims to Hindus to Catholics to everybody, uh, raging evolutionists, to everything. And I, I uh, uh, use only scripture. I use only scripture, and in uh, uh, in defense of uh, the faith. And I show people what the Word of God actually says on these things. And I've yet to come across any so-called contradiction that's actually valid uh i don't believe in contradictions uh, in the bible i don't believe there are any contradictions whatsoever i've yet to be proven wrong um years ago i used to uh do my broadcast on periscope i actually had an open offer for a few months uh uh, several months actually on it was a, a ten thousand dollar reward to anybody who could actually show me a real valid contradiction in the word of god <clears throat> now a contradiction is not uh like a misprint or any of that kind of thing or a translation difference but rather a contradiction has to be an actual valid contradiction where it says this over here like for example just making something up here. For example, over here it says that Jesus is the Christ, and over here it would say that Jesus is not the Christ. There has to be an actually like clear, concise uh, contradiction in Scripture, where so-and-so did this, and over here it says so-and-so did not do this, like an actual contradiction. Um, <clears throat> and I haven't found any. There isn't any. So there's so many people out there that believe that there are contradictions in the Bible. And uh, we're going to take a look at a few today that I actually came across when I was debating an atheist about four years ago. About four years ago. And uh, I wrote down uh, his uh, so-called uh, contradictions, uh, the things that he posed me. And I uh, will be going over my answer, showing you how to actually answer these things. Now, in studying apologetics, you have to understand the extreme important study principle, the clear interprets the unclear. You have to understand this. You have to understand uh, the veracity of God's truth, that he cannot lie. And when it says in the word of God that he preserves his word unto all generations, that means he preserves his word until generations. He will not allow it to be corrupted or destroyed or lost or any of that kind of thing. So in that, that means there are no lost books. There are no lost manuscripts. There are no lost texts of scripture. No such thing as that. And 
and that there are no contradictions in the Word of God. Now, we will, of course, come across from time to time things in Scripture that we ourselves may not fully understand, that we may be confused about. We may not see how exactly this works out. That doesn't mean the thing in Scripture is an error. That does not, does not mean that it's a contradiction. Because I don't understand it, that doesn't make the thing then wrong. But that's generally how the atheists, the Muslims, and all of them actually approach scripture. Because they don't get it, they don't see it, that means then that the thing is wrong. Rather, that's, that's just a height of conceitedness. But let's take a look at some of these things. So I hope that you got your notepad and pens handy and uh, you got your tea, you got your coffee, grab your Bibles and uh, we got a lot of stuff to go over. And if you have any comments, questions, issues, insights regarding this, please feel free to ask away. And as this is Saturday, if you have any comments, questions, issues, discussion topics, anything else at all, please, by all means, feel free to ask away. Be glad to hear from you and we'll get to them when we can. Alrighty. So, there are a lot of different angles and things that we could come at. Uh, one of the uh, first so-called contradictions I've ever come across when I was young is I heard people argue about the contradiction in Genesis in the creation account where we see in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, God making all things. And then uh, this uh, individual individuals uh, believe that there's a contradiction then in chapter 2 verse 9. Because you see in chapter 1, where we see where, where God makes all the plants and the trees and all these things in one of the days of creation. But then we see again in chapter 2, verse 9, And out of the ground, this is after he formed man, and the Lord, formed, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And verse 9, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so did God then plant the trees in the days of creation or did he plant the trees later in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9? It's an absolutely clear and obvious answer on what exactly is going on. But this is literally the logic that people will use in trying to refute Scripture, trying to disprove the Word of God. Because if we take a look at Genesis, and, and we take a look at when he made all things, Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 is talking about the Garden of Eden, that the, the Garden of Eden itself. He put Adam in the Garden of Eden, and then God in the Garden, look what it says. The Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. So he already made all the trees and all things in all regular creation, and now it's talking about his creation of the Garden of Eden, of the garden itself and all the pleasant and beautiful trees he, he brought in the garden to showing Adam the, all these things for the garden. It's not a contradiction, but the atheist, in their smugness, will take that 
and and see that as a contradiction and, and as an actual uh, point of argument to try to use to refute scripture. Because, well, did God make the trees on this day of creation? Or did he make the trees over here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9? It's because it says he made every tree. So every tree that is pleasant to the sight in the Garden of Eden. He had already made all the plants and all the stuff. But you see that? It's just ridiculous. But that's what people do. Now... <clears throat> Other contradictions, like I did a video yesterday, on Mark chapter 10, verse 18, where uh, one of the other things that, that uh, people will try to do, another uh, angle of argument and attack, is one is just the blatant, illogical uh, type of approach. The other one, as we see, is hyper-cherry-picking. Hyper-cherry-picking is what they'll do. And they'll ignore all the rest of the word of God. And they'll pull this one verse of this one, one text out. And they'll build an argument on that. Like Mark chapter 10 verse 18. Where Jesus says to the, to the rich young ruler who comes as, as a good master. What shall I do that I may in, in, inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one that is God. And they say, see, see, Jesus saying he, he's not God. Is Jesus saying he's not God? No. Because when we actually put the verse back in the Bible and take a look at the rest of all of Scripture, we see very clearly that the uh, the Bible it just goes on and on and on and on about the deity of Christ. And he proves it by many infallible proofs, both by word and deed. And as you see, he claims the names of God, he accepts worship, he forgives sins, he casts out devils in his own name, and he has power over life and death, and power to forgive, power to heal, power to save. We see it so many times. The word of God going over and over and over and over and over, the deity of Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus then saying in Mark 10, 18? Is he saying that he's not God? He says there's none that has any good but one that is God. Well, you have to take a look at context. Stop cherry picking. And this is why I'm always talking about when you're reading the Bible and you come across a verse and you're like, wait, what? Stop right there. Back up. Take a look at the whole context again. Well, if you try to interpret a verse all alone by itself, when you come across something you're not quite sure and you're just looking only at that verse, only at that sentence, you're trying to figure it out, you're going to have trouble. You need to back up and look at everything that's being said leading up to that and after that. Put it back in context. And not just that, like the Bereans, you need to search out all scriptures. See where else in the word of God does it talk about this? The word of God explains these things. If we would just learn to read it properly, study it properly, back up, look at it again. So we're going to look at some of these things. But before we can actually dive into the depths of this, we have to keep in mind about the promises and the veracity of God. We have to take a look at, at what God says about the preservation of his word and what this means. Okay. So, hope you got your notepads handy. I got some verses for you to look up. So, grab your tea, grab your coffee. Time to study the Word of God. All right. 
So good morning, good morning. How's it going? Okay, so we're going to take a look at some of these things. Now, we've gone over these before. We're going to go over it again. Now, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Stands forever. Stands as authority. Stands dominant. Stands as power forever. So, does, I'm going to ask you folks a question if you can answer it in the comments. The word of our God shall stand forever. Does that give any room to possibility then that the word of God can be corrupted, lost, or affected negatively? Changed to, to be uh, full of contradictions. D does that verse alone give any room to that? Think about it. Because there are people that agree with these verses. They say, oh yeah, and you read these, you say they say amen, but they have in their mind the belief that there are contradictions and flaws and errors in the word of God. But the Bible says the word of God stands forever. So then, who's right, who's wrong? It can't be that the word of God stands forever and there's contradictions. The word of God stands forever and there's lost books, lost texts, lost manuscripts. So which is it? So let's take a look at another one. Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away. So time uh, in time we see... We see this earth will be burned up and uh, God will make a new heaven and a new earth. That's what it says. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Okay. My words shall not pass away. Again, does that give any room to the possibility that there are lost books, lost texts, lost manuscripts, and contradictions in the word of God? No, there clearly isn't. All right, so let's take a look at another one. How about this one? If you have your Bibles handy, could you please turn with me to the book of Psalms? Psalms, chapter 12, verses 6 to 7. Psalms, chapter 12, verses 6 to 7. You need to see this. And if you're into underlining, highlighting, marking your Bible, if you could please do so with Psalms, chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Okay, look what it says. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Look what it says. Thou shalt keep them, the words, the words of God will be kept. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, the words of God, you will keep them. Look what it says. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation of Psalms of David, of King David. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So the word of words of God are preserved by God forever. 
They're preserved. That then therefore means there are no lost texts, lost manuscripts, or lost books of the Bible, and there are no contradictions in the Word of God. Because you know what that means if there are contradictions in the Word of God. Do you know what that means? In and of itself, what that then denotes is that God is fallible, can make a mistake, lies, he's incompetent, incapable, God fails, and that God did not keep his word like he said he would. He did not preserve his word like he said he would, and that God is a failure. If there is even one contradiction in the word of God, God is a failure. Look at what it says. Because, let's look at the next one, which really emphasizes the point that I just made. Psalms 138. Please go to Psalms 138, verse 2. Psalms 138, verse 2. Look what it says. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Look what it says. For thou, O God, for thou hast magnified thy word, thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Psalms 138 verse 2. Flat says that God has magnified, elevated as, as higher, superior than, greater than, magnified thy word, the word of God, the words of God, the doctrine of God, the truth of God, of his teachings, of, of what he has said, his word, above all thy name. How high and holy is the name of Jesus Christ? How high and holy are the names of God? Says right here in Psalms 138 verse 2, God has magnified his word above his name. Let that sink in just for a moment. Let that sink in just for a moment. Really really mull on that one so if there are lost books lost texts lost manuscripts if there's contradictions in the bible that then calls into question the veracity of the bible which then calls into question the veracity of the very names of god It really makes you question the entirety of the faith then. Because God, not only then is God a failure, he did not keep his word, he did not preserve his word, he allowed it to be corrupted then, he allowed it to be lost and full of contradictions then, and that then calls into question the very power of his name, because his word is above his name, and if his word can be corrupted and lost, what does that have to then say about his name then? You see what happens. If one single contradiction exists in the Bible, that then calls into question the entirety of the faith. Now, 
I before we continue on, I do need to interject here at one point. People say, well, well, what about all the other translations then? Because clearly some of these other translations have errors and contradictions. Yeah, deliberately created by man in an attempt to invalidate the Bible. People take the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, which are preserved unto all generations. They take the manuscripts and they deliberately monkey with them to create corrupted versions. But the original still exists. The original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts still exist because God flat out says so. Because look what it says. Um, where's, where's the verse I want? Matthew 5.18. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 18. Matthew chapter 5 verse 18. For verily I say unto you. So the Lord Jesus is saying. Verily I say unto you. Till heaven and earth pass. One jot or one one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now what does that mean? Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. If we take a look at this and what this means, jot and tittle is yod and tittel, which is the Greek and the Hebrew. Which means the smallest smallest little marks the dots and little squiggles of the smallest marks in the greek to the smallest marks in the hebrew not even one of the smallest marks in all the punctuation and grammar and words of the greek and hebrew of the uh, which is the old testament is hebrew new testament is greek of the greek and hebrew manuscripts the greek and hebrew manuscripts will never pass away it's talking about the what is preserved what is preserved now I need you to bear with me, and I know some people are not going to like this, but the English translations are not the preserved word of God. The preserved word of God is the Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts from which we translate to the English, French, German, Russian, Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, Mongolian, whatever. It's translated from the Greek and the Hebrew saying that our english translation is the preserved word of god is an error it's not this is a translation from the greek and hebrew god god gave it in the greek and hebrew and then it's translated into english so we go to the greek and hebrew manuscripts because the greek and hebrew is what is preserved Okay. There are some people who get up in arms on that one, but are you honestly telling me that the Greek and Hebrew are not preserved and were so, uh, and were uh, given to flaw and error until until King James in the year 1611 finally translated it into English? Uh, no, and the Greek and the King James does not correct the Greek and Hebrew. So are you saying oh, the King James corrects the Greek and Hebrew? Are you saying the Greek and Hebrew are full of errors and contradictions? Then so God did not even preserve it back then think about it it's the greek and hebrew flat out says the jot and the jot and tittle the yacht and to tell it's the greek and the hebrew the smallest marks of the greek and hebrew will not fade away and is preserved unto all generations that's what it says because god cannot lie and he's not the author of confusion he's not the author of confusion now 
in the argument of versions, I don't want to get into that whole can of worms, but in my but but uh, the majority text manuscripts of the of the uh, received text of the King James, New King James, these which are based on the majority text manuscripts is the most accurate translation of the English speaking language only. English speaking. It's for English. The King James, New King James, based on the majority text manuscripts, the received text, is the most accurate translation of the English-speaking language. Again, it's a translation of the original Greek and Hebrew. I digress. Let's go back. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. All right? Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Psalms 100, verse 5. Psalm 100, verse 5. Look what the Lord says. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. There it is again. His truth endures to all generations. Psalms 119, verses one, verse 152. Psalm 119, 152, concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Thou hast founded them forever. Psalms 119, verse 160, same chapter, verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Will never be lost. Will never be changed or lost or corrupted. Now again, Matthew 5, 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot and one tittle, shall no wise pass from the law to all be fulfilled. So nothing of the word that is in the word of God will, will be lost. So all be fulfilled. It be preserved to all. Everything's fulfilled. And when is everything fulfilled? Well, that's talking about eternity. So we see Luke chapter 16, verse 17. Luke chapter 16, verse 17. Again, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one tittle of the law to fail. It is easier for earth and heaven to be destroyed, lost, changed. It's easier for that to happen than it is for one single little dot of the Greek and the Hebrew to fade away. Because God preserves his word, his word is above his very name, and he preserves it unto all generations. Now that's what the Bible says. And the Bible is the word of God. The Holy Scriptures, the Holy Writ, the word of God, God's words that he gave to us. Now how did he give it to us? Let's take a look at this now. How did he give it to us? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, look what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture, that's Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is given, and then the word given means theonoustos. Theonoustos in the Greek, which means God breathed. All scripture is breathed by God, spoken by God, given by God. All scripture is given by God 
breathed by God, by inspiration of God, by God's mind. God's mind, through God's mouth, he spoke it. So given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. Then we go over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Now, who did God speak the scriptures to? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture, that's any of the teachings, any of the doctrines, any of the things that is said in the entirety of the word of God, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. None of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation was made up by the mind of man or, or by any of the will of man. Or like Richard Dawkins says, by some ignorant sheep herder somewhere just jotted down some myths and lore somewhere. No, no, that never happened. Knowing this, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. The scriptures did not come by the will of man, the ideas of man. But holy men of God, like the prophets, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the spirit of the living God came upon these individuals and told them what to write down. And God worked with them in patience and long-suffering as the men were sitting there with their pen and paper, and God told them what to write. And they wrote down what God told them to write, and then God preserves that unto all generations. That's what that's saying there. And God preserves it unto all generations. So let me just ask you a question now. In, in all of that that I just told you, is there then any room for possibility then that God failed, that God did not keep his word, that, God, that God, uh, God's word could be corrupted, lost change, lost books, lost texts, lost manuscripts, and contradictions? Is it possible then that that could happen? No, it's not possible. It's not possible. There are no contradictions in the entirety of the Word of God. It is 100% trustworthy. Now, it is on us as the Bereans to do the study, to check everything. That if we come across something we're not sure, or someone has brought up something that we're not sure, we cannot allow to come in our minds the idea the thought the possibility that it is an error there are contradictions or any of those kinds of things either it's one of of certain options either number one i just don't understand it which is generally the issue is we just don't understand it or number two i i am not combining studying cross-referencing scripture correctly like like for example the workspace salvationists 
where they take James 2 to say that faith that works is dead, so that means it's salvationary, so you got to maintain works to keep your salvation. I'm not cross-referencing scripture correctly, and I'm being led to an incorrect understanding. Either I'm just purely just not understanding the text itself, what it's flat out saying, or I am misinterpreting it incorrectly, like the works-based salvationist idea. Or number three, number three, that I am currently using a corrupted version where they have deliberately encoded contradictions in the newer versions, like some of them do, where they deliberately omit passages. They actually take out verses, take out passages, change the words, change the meanings deliberately they monkey with the bible to create corrupted texts so that so that i am then led to believe that there are contradictions in the bible because while the one i'm reading there are contradictions so what do i do if i come across one of those three options number one if i'm just not understanding it do I just assume that it is an error in the text or a contradiction or something like that? No. What do I do? Keep reading. Back up. Go over again slowly. Keep reading. Look throughout scripture. Pray about it. Ask the Lord for wisdom and he will teach you. He'll show you. Well, what if it is a deliberate uh, twisting like the workspace to come across these things? What do I do? I keep reading. I back up, go over it again slowly, look at the context, check throughout the rest of the word to see what it says, and, and I pray about it, ask the Lord for wisdom, and he will show you. What about number three? A corrupted version, a corrupted text that is deliberately created by, by wicked people who want to monkey with the Bible and cause confusion amongst the saints and the unbelievers. What do I do if I'm using a corrupted version? keep reading back up go over it again slowly check throughout the rest of the word of god to see what it says research research do the do the word studies check the hebrew and the greek of these things look into it research look into it, see what does the word rest of the word of god have to say on this pray ask the lord for wisdom and he will show you so it's the same answer It's just like, for example, when we look at the accuracy of the scriptures regarding the gospel, where Galatians 1, 8 to 9, where there's a curse upon anyone that would monkey with the Bible, that would, that would preach a different gospel. They're accursed of God. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, that the word of God is not open to personal interpretation. Well, I have my interpretation. You have your interpretation. No, there, there is no personal interpretation. What it says is what it means. It's not open to personal interpretation, but it's given to all people to understand. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, all scripture is given from God, breathed by God, and is profitable. And we see Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, curses from God, curses of God upon anyone who would dare change the word of God to add, subtract, or monkey with change anything in the Bible, God will curse you. That's how serious it is. Because it's above his very name. 
That's how high and holy and special and sacred the word of God is. So, with that said, are there then lost books, lost texts, lost manuscripts, and contradictions of the Bible? Are there contradictions in the word of God? Are there lost texts, lost manuscripts, lost books? No, there are none. If there is even one that deliberately goes against, as, as what it says here in the scriptures, if there actually are real, valid contradictions in the actual text, in the Hebrew, in the Greek, then God is a liar. He's a failure. The faith is called into question. And if God is a failure, then he is not God. Then go eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. You see that? That's how serious this is. And uh, even allowing, now here, uh, just one last point before we move along. If you even allow the idea in your mind and you're mulling it over, what if, what if it's possible? Do you not understand how absolutely, unbelievably blasphemous and heretical that is? To hold to the idea, to mull over and entertain the idea that God could fail, God's a failure, when his word is above his very name, how absolutely blasphemy, uh, uh, blasphemous that is. It's a lie of hell. It's a hellish doctrine. It's a doctrine of devils attacking the veracity of God because if they can make God fallible in your mind, how much easier it is to get you on anything else because you then call into question everything how can you trust anything in the bible if if there's parts of the bible you can't trust so questioning the veracity of the word of god you are also questioning the veracity of the names of god because his word is above his very name you have to call into question the name of Jesus. So, this is where I'm coming from. I am a biblical purist. I'm a biblical literalist. What it says is what it means, and I can trust it. And as we see, again, with talking about the, the, the versions, there is what's called close equivalences and exact equivalences now a close equivalence is like the niv esv asv all of these which are corrupted and ha do have lots of issues and errors that deliberately fabricated deliberately made deliberately created in those versions where they give names of god to the devil they omit passages on the blood of jesus they take out other portions and monkey with the word of god and put in different words with different meanings to completely mess up the bible they, they do that but there's there there's things about so they're they're close but not not exact close but not but not enough you could still lead people to the lord and salvation in them but you can't really trust those versions completely explicitly because they have too many issues and flaws in them then you have what's called exact equivalences these are translations based on the majority text manuscripts the received text which is a direct word-for-word -word copy from the greek and hebrew manuscripts of the original scriptures the greek and hebrew which we still have they're not lost 
and we translate from the Greek and Hebrew into English, French, German, Spanish, Russian, whatever. And it's these uh, the received text, the majority text manuscripts called an exact word for word of what it says in the Greek and Hebrew is what it says in English. And they can, this can be trusted. This can be trusted. Now, if you don't believe me, go do the study yourself. Go do the study yourself. So with this, then, when we take a look at questions that people would bring up, like the stupid Muslim argument of saying Jesus isn't God by Mark 10, 18, or the atheist evolutionist arguing about this, trying to bring up stupid arguments, like trying to bring in the issue in the Genesis creation. When did God make the trees on this day of the creation or Genesis 2 verse 9? Which is it? That's a contradiction. No, it's not. One's talking about the, the creation of the world and the other's talking about the creation of the Garden of Eden. I mean, it's so plain and obvious there. So plain and obvious. When we are posed these kinds these kinds of questions these kinds of these kinds of things we immediately need to stop what we're doing and root ourselves in the absolute authority of the word of god that there are no contradictions that's not an option it is not an option that there could possibly be could possibly be and i've had atheists even ask me so are you saying in 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 everything that it's not even the the slightest even remotest fraction of a possibility there could be contradictions like no there's none zero zero percent none whatsoever and i challenge you to show me one and they can't what they want to do is they want to get you to question it, to hold that, that doubt in your mind. They're trying to sow seeds of doubt when God says there's none. There are none. There's no lost books, no lost manuscripts, no, no lost scrolls, none of that. There's no contradictions. And you will be laughed to scorn. I'm telling you right now, you will get, like, university professors with master's degrees of theology laughing at you telling you you're absurd because you don't believe there are contradictions and because they, they adamantly believe there are you will get scholars and theologians and, and the and the educated elite and people of all kinds of, of shapes and everything coming at you laughing at you mocking you because you don't believe there are contradictions well you should pity them because they don't know the truth. My God, my Lord Jesus cannot lie. And my God, my Lord Jesus says, there are no contradictions because he preserves his word unto all generations and his word is above his very name. And I am not even going to entertain the possibility of questioning the veracity of God's word and his name. I'm not that stupid. Because that's very dangerous ground. So let's take a look at some so-called contradictions. Now I got a bunch here, but the one I want to start with is this one. Number four. We'll start at number four. The reason I want to start at this one. Now this question you're going to like this one. 
This is a, a supposed contradiction that Muslims use and have been using lately as an absolute mic drop, absolute undeniable proof that the Christian's Bible is corrupted and there's, it's a contradiction and it proves that the Christian's God is a lie and Muslims use this one as an absolute nail in the coffin. Uh, but I have an answer for it. So uh, I came across uh, an atheist uh, a few years back when I did a big debate. And these are, these are I believe I have eight, eight so-called contradictions that this atheist brought up. This was one of them, number four here. And this is one that Muslims hold on to and, prove, and use as proof against Christians. And it's regarding a... a Ahaziah when he began to rule over Jerusalem. How old was Ahaziah when he began to rule over Jerusalem? Because it seems to be a contradiction between 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. So which is it? Now, I came across a YouTube video last week. Last week. Where there was actually a Muslim preacher on the street in the youtube video and the video title was a, a question that christians cannot answer that that disproves their god christians cannot answer this question is what it was said, what it said. i answered it and uh, they refused to talk to me so okay so because we take a look here at how old is ahaziah when he began to rule over jerusalem in 2 Kings chapter 8, go to 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 26. 2 Kings chapter 8 verse 26. It says, Two and twenty years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, and the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. Okay? So it says that Ahaziah was, was 2 and 20 years old in 2 Kings 8.26. Okay? Hold on. If we go to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 22... Verse 2. So in 2 Kings 8.26, it says 2 and 20. In 2 Chronicles 22, verse 2, it says 40, 40 and 2 years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri. So, the Muslim says, which is it? If there's no contradictions, God cannot lie. Ahaziah, was he 22 or 42? Because Kings says he's 22, Chronicles says he was 42. Which is it?
And for those who don't study these things, immediately you'll feel a sense of panic. Especially if you're put on the spot. You feel a sense of panic. Immediately, your doubts arise in your mind. Well, well, that's a clear big difference. 22 and 42, that's a big difference of age. So how do you get around that? How do you explain that? Because it flat out says he was 20, 22 when he began to reign. It says over here, he's 42 when he began to reign. The same person of the same mother of the same family. It's referring to the same person. So which is it? 22 or 42? Well, it's not either or. Because, well, if you say, well, he was 22. Well, then you got the contradiction of Chronicles. If you say, well, he was 42, then you got the contradiction of Kings. You see this, this here I have on the screen, the clear interprets the unclear. Do you remember what I have been teaching you uh, since we've been going here on YouTube of the Bible study principles of the three points of the Christian faith, the three points of Bible study, interpretation, application, demonstration. We're going over it and the slow reading, slow study, cross-referencing, and the clear interprets the unclear. The clear interprets the unclear is the cherry on top. And what and in the context of what we've been going over, we must understand. We must understand. Take a deep breath. There are no contradictions. Therefore, there is an explanation. There is an explanation, even if I just don't see it, I don't get it right now, that doesn't mean there isn't one. There is one, we just need to dig. We just need to dig. So, I was posed this question a few years back. And I have to say, it did take me back for a moment because it was quite obvious that it was a big difference and and that's from the outset it could look like a contradiction and so i really got to thinking about this okay well, which was it 20 and 2 or 40 and 2 let's see so second kings 826 2 and 20 now look at the way it is written look at the way it's written look at the specific words okay Two and twenty years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. Second Chronicles 22, verse 2. Forty and two years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri. We also need to do is do a study on culture, society, the way things were done, and the, fa the family line, and what Chronicles is, and what Kings is. The first thing to take note, Jehoram, the father of Ahaziah, died at the age of 40 years. Second Chronicles 21, verses 5 and 20. When Jehoram died, Ahaziah ascended to the throne. 2 Chronicles 22, verse 2. If the son was 42 years old at the time, 
if he if if Ahaziah was 42 years old when he reigned at the time then that would mean he was two years older than his deceased father the Hebrew text of second Chronicles 22 verse 2 literally describes Ahaziah as a son of 42 years some scholars have argued that this phrase does not mean that he as an individual was 42 years old when he came to the throne rather the expression depicts the sum of years that had passed since the founding of the dynasty of omri the father of ahab note the phrase house of ahab in verse 3 from whom ahaziah was descended through his mother verse 2 from the time of omri to that of ahaziah was 42 years the argument is made that 42 should remain in second chronicles 22 verse 2 it is pointed out that ahaziah's age was indeed 22 as in kings as it says in second kings 8 26 when we see that in second chronicles 22 verse 2 as the beginning of the kingly reign of his family line the family line starting with omri then his son ahab and then ahab's daughter athaliah who was ahaziah's wife it is also pointed out that the numbers given in the hebrew text are not the numerals for two and 22 but are written out they're written out two and 40 two and 20 which which seems to make it a, uh, make it a copyist mistake less likely so it's not even a mistake in the scriptures also the words was and old in second chronicles 22 2 are not in the original hebrew but were added to the english translation to make it smoother no explanation there if you were to take the greek and hebrew manuscripts and do an exact direct copy to english it would be actually broken english and this and the grammar would be flawed and you couldn't read it properly in english so what the translators did is they 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 fitted in words to help with the flow of the narrative but the words that they added you if you take note in your bible open your bible you'll note certain words are italicized the italicized words are the added words that the scholars and the translators added to help with the English narrative because a direct copy left for broken English. So they put they put in words to help with the struck stru sentence structure, words which also did not contradict or cause issue with the original Greek and Hebrew words. You understand? So the in Second Chronicles 22, verse 2, the words was and old were added by the translators to help with the narrative. We also have need to understand that. Without them, without those words, it would read a son of 42 years. A son of 42 years. So therefore, we take a look at something here by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
as uh, some of this uh, info here I got was from him as he did a great study on this. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones states, thus the sense of Ahaziah's being a son of 42 years in his reigning is seen to refer to his being a son of the dynasty of Omri, which, which was in its 42nd year. So it's not that Ahaziah was 42, but that the dynasty reign of Omri's family was 42 years. So it's not talking about Ahaziah personally, but rather about his family in Chronicles. Kings is about Ahaziah himself personally. Chronicles is about his family line, his dynasty line. Isaiah is being a son of 42 years in his reigning is seen to refer to his being a son of the dynasty of Omri, which was in its 42nd year. Putting the two scriptures, Kings and Chronicles, together reveals that, that Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign during the 42nd year of the dynasty of Omri, which, of which he is also an integral part. So, these passages then are not a contradiction, but rather it's a misunderstanding of our part of not understanding the Hebrew chronicling of a family line. So, there you go. The unanswerable question, the absolute proof that that the God-haters use against the Christian's Bible of this clear and obvious contradiction is not even a contradiction at all. They just don't understand how Hebrew chronicling works. So there you go. So how old was Ahaziah when he began to rule over Jerusalem? 2 Kings 22 or Chronicles 42? Well, he was 22. Chronicles is talking about the chronicling of the family line where the love the family of Omri was 42 years Ahaziah was 22. do the study that's what it shows so there you go hope that makes sense so let's take a look at another one so before we move along uh, does that make sense do you understand uh, what that's saying there and we take a look at second kings and second chronicles regarding ahaziah do you understand as, as i showed you what it actually says there that proves right there it's not a contradiction it just winds up being a misunderstanding of our part so let's take a look at another one <clears throat> this is yet another so-called contradiction uh, that uh, atheists and other people and Muslims try to use against the Bible to try to prove contradictions. Here's one. When we take a look in 2 Samuel chapter 24, okay? 2 Samuel 24. We see that uh, David sinned. He disobeyed God, so therefore a judgment of God came upon him. But if we take a look at this, when the enemy was coming against Israel and King David was reigning, King David sinned against the Lord by 
falling into doubt and fear. And instead of just trusting the Lord, he took it upon himself to try to figure out everything himself. And he counted his army, which, which he wasn't supposed to do. So who, the question is, who incited David to count the fighting men of Israel? Second Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, would seem to indicate that God moved David to count the men of Israel. But if we go to, uh, go to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, First Chronicles 21, verse 1. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. So in First Chronicles 21, verse 1, it says, Satan provoked David to number Israel. But in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24, verse 1, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So who incited David to count the fighting men, God or the devil? And if you're not studying these things and you're not paying attention to Scripture, it might cause you to panic a little bit. And it might bring up doubt in your mind. You might actually start wondering, well, maybe there is a contradiction. or Because that's weird because it gives indication that God incited David. And over here it says that Satan did. So which is it? God and Satan certainly aren't the same person. And if you say, well, well, God did it, well, you got the contradiction that Satan did it. Well, if you say, well, Satan did it, then you got the contradiction, well, that, that God did it. And you got a contradiction in Scripture. And so which is it? Let's see. I answered this one. A couple years ago, I had an, an angry atheist bring this one up against me. Well, all smug. Well, which is it? Was it God or the devil? Let's see. If you slow down, you remember the three points of Bible study, interpretation, application, demonstration, and proper studying and cross-referencing. Scripture is scripture. Right, defining word of truth. Slow down. Pay attention to the specific words, the individual words, what it's saying, how it's being said, the meanings of the words, everything. Pay attention to everything. And you also have to hold in your mind and understand there are no contradictions in the Bible. Clear interprets the unclear. All right, so the first question is answered simply where the Hebrew translation of the words means David's heart was hardened and Satan tempted. Take a look at what it says. Now, I want to point you to something. You'll note throughout the word of God, when God is mentioned, answer it, please answer it in the, in the comments here. When, God's, when God is mentioned, mention of God is always capitalized, right? Right? 
Because look at it says in, in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. Look what it says. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he... Now, could you please tell me, could you please tell me in your Bibles, in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, the word he... Is it, is that word he capitalized or lowercase? Uppercase or lowercase? Do you see that? It's lowercase. It's lowercase. And he, lowercase, moved David. Who he? He who? Let's take a look. The word he in 2 Samuel is not capitalized for one, not a pronoun referring to God, nor is it referring to an angel of God influencing, but is a pronoun of the devil. Because this also goes hand in hand. This is also why you need to study, cross-reference the word of God. Take a look at James chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. James chapter 1, verses 14, uh, 13 to 14. Look what it says. Um, James 1, verses 13 to 14. Look what it says. James 1, 13 to 14. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God will never, ever, ever, a billion trillion, never, evers, tempt you with evil. Look what it says, verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and, and enticed. God does not tempt with sin. He does not tempt with evil. Alright? All teachings and passages coincide together and explain each other. And scripture is saying that God cannot lie. In him is no darkness. And he cannot tempt with sin and evil. This then leaves only one explanation then for this uh, uh, text combination. That, it, that it's the devil that lies and tempts with evil. He is the prince of darkness. So therefore, when we combine 2 Samuel 24 verse 1 and 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, who enticed David to count the fighting men, God or the devil? Well, clearly, when we look at this, it was the devil, not God. God does not tempt with evil. So the he in Samuel 24 uh, verse 1, the he is referring to he the devil. Okay? So, any comments, questions on that before we move along? Does this one make sense to you? Do you understand this? Do you see how that works? I want to make sure you understand this before we move along. 
We got a couple more. Just like Job. Exactly, Michael. Just like in Job. God did not tempt Job. But the devil can even move in such a way and tempt to put doubt and fear in your mind so that Job was thinking that it's God that's doing it when it wasn't. It was the devil doing it. The devil caused Job to fall into such doubt and all this and fear that he started accusing that it was God that was doing this to him. But it wasn't. That God did not do it to Job. The devil did. Now, now, as we see, as the devil, as Jesus said to Peter, the devil has desired to sift you, to, to test you, God can allow testings upon us to strengthen our faith, to test our faith. But it's not God that's doing it. He's allowing a test, but he does not do the, te- the temptation of these dark things of the evil and sin himself. He doesn't do that. So we see that. Okay. Now, on the heels of this one of David counting the fighting men of Israel, this brings up yet another one. Uh, regarding the fighting men of Israel. So if we take a look at uh, at this now in 2 Samuel 24, so same same chapter, the question is of the supposed contradiction, the supposed contradiction, in that count, when David counted the fighting men of Israel, how many were there how many fighting men were there found in israel eight hundred thousand second samuel 24 verse 9 or one million one hundred thousand first chronicles 21 verse 5 because the one it says there is eight hundred thousand and the other, it says that there is 1,100,000. So which is it? Is it a contradiction? Which one's right? Well, let's take a look. So if we take a look at 2 Samuel 24, verse 9. So David told Joab to go out and count all the, all, all the fighting men. And in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 9, And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Okay, so 800,000. 2 Samuel 24, verse 9. Let's take a look at... First Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter 21. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 5. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and an hundred thousand men that drew sword, and Judah was four hundred threescore and ten thousand men that drew sword. Okay. Which is it? Again, if we slow down, using the three points of the Christian faith, three points of Bible study, interpretation, application, demonstration, the what, the how, the why, 
We see that they have the flat out uh, the, the what of the context, what it's saying. Then we go back, go over it again slowly, taking a look at how it's being said, the specific words and the pictures and the images, doing the word studies, paying attention to everything about it which words are used, how they're used, how they're presented, and what they mean, the punctuation, everything. Cross-referencing it with the rest of the Word of God, and we can see, and the clear interprets the unclear. Look at what it says. And so if we read it carefully, if we read it carefully, um, Okay, where's my notes here? 2 Samuel. Go back to 2 Samuel. 24 verse 9. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And we see over in Chronicles. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the uh, of the people to David, and all they of Israel were a thousand, thousand, and a hundred thousand men that drew sword. What was Joab told to do? Joab was told to go out and count the fighting men of Israel, to do a number to see how many people were there in Israel and how many drew the sword. So it's not that it's a contradiction, but as we as we have been seeing. That, uh, that the one in uh, is referring to the personal and the other is referring to an overall general, generalization of a larger scale. So as we see in 2 Samuel is the number of all Israel. 2 Samuel is the number of all Israel. Chronicles is only the valiant fighting men. It's in the wording of the verses where the explanation is found. Misunderstandings are not are not necessarily evidence of contradiction. So we see here in uh, in eight hundred thousand versus one million one hundred thousand, and he's referring to he says all Israel of everybody that there is, and then here's how many that draw the sword. So he's he's giving he's giving a record of how many there are. And then how many can fight? So it's not saying, well, well, it's this many that draw the sword and this many that draw the sword. No, one is referring to the all, to the all of how many there are in Israel and how many draw the sword. It's very easy to see this. It's not a contradiction at all, even remotely. Do you see that? Does it make sense? It's not a contradiction. It's in the specific wording. But some people, when they when they see these these differences. They grasp at straws to try to make these a contradiction to someone who's not studying or not paying attention. But if you slow down and you just use logic and you take a look at these things and you research, look what it says, all Israel and draws the sword. One is referring to how many there are in Israel and how many can and how many of these in Israel can draw the sword, how many can fight. That's what it's saying. It's not a contradiction. Now, here's another one. Now, because David sinned and he did count the people and he wasn't supposed to, 
Satan tempted him to sin against the order of God, and David went and counted the people. Then we see a judgment comes upon David because of this. Now, this is where an angry atheist uh, brought this one up, thinking that this is a contradiction, and uses this as an evidence of contradiction. And this is his question. In the judgment of David, God sent his prophet Gad to threaten David with, uh, with, with God's judgment with how many years of famine. How many years of famine will come upon Israel now because of David's sin? 2 Samuel 24 verse 13, seven years of famine? Or 1 Chronicles 21 verse 12, three years of famine? Is it seven years of famine or three years of famine? Which is it? Let's take a look. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 13. 2 Samuel 24, verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while, while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land. Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. So we see seven years of famine in Second Chronicles uh, 24, verse 13. And we take a look at, uh, sorry, Second Samuel, not Second Samuel, Second Samuel 24, verse 13. Or in First Chronicles 21, verse 12. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 12. Either three years famine or three months to be destroyed before thy foes while 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 take that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself what word shall I bring again to him that sent me? So the prophet Gad was sent, and we see in one it, it says seven, the other says three. So which is it? Seven or three? Well, again, using the three points of the Christian faith, three points of Bible study, interpretation, application, demonstration, and using the clear interprets the unclear, we understand there are no contradictions and that there is an answer. And all we need to do is, is go back, take a look at what it says, how it's being said, paying attention to the specific words, the sentence structure, what words are used, how they're used, and all of this. And uh, as well as paying attention to the context of the whole story. Not just cherry-picking verses. Look at the whole story of everything that's going on. Back up. Go over again the whole thing slowly. If we do that, and we read the whole story, paying attention to all the detail, the prophet Gad actually confronted David about his sin on two separate occasions. All right? Two separate occasions. This interpretation is based on the difference in language used to present the alternative punishments to David. In the 2 Samuel passage, of 2 Samuel 24 verse 13, in the 2 Samuel passage, the prophet Gad presents the alternatives as a question. Look at it, as a question. 
shall seven years of famine come to you in your land does not mean that that it, that it, it is seven years but he's asking a question like shall seven years shall seven years of famine come on your land verse 13 in the first chronicles passage the option is presented more as a command choose for yourself choose for yourself either three years famine or three months to be defeated you decide you decide and that's uh first chronicles uh and those who offer the solution assume that perhaps the second samuel passage records the first encounter of gad and david in which the alternatives are presented for david's consideration and that after some fasting and prayer gad returned for david's decision by which time god had reduced the duration of the famine from seven to three in response to david's supplication as we take a look the first the first one is actually a question the second time he comes it's changed and it's now instead of asking a question it's now telling david to decide so you see it's in it's in the language it's not a contradiction but the the one he comes and then it goes and david is mulling this over and he's praying and he's he's repenting before the lord and then he comes again and he says now you need to decide so you see it's not a contradiction but it actually is referring to two separate visitations by the prophet gad not a contradiction all right now let's move on to another one does that make sense do you see that do you see that when you pay attention to the language the specific words and all this it's not a contradiction and there are no contradictions it makes sense when you slow it down study it take a look at what it says and when when you do not have the option of contradiction you then are looking for okay then how does this line up and yes i see that how that makes sense okay here's the next one so similar to the ahaziah how old was he when he began to reign over jerusalem we answered that one but we see there's yet another one another one and uh in question five here that i was asked how old was jehoiakim when he became king of Jerusalem, and how long did he reign? How old was Jehoiakim when he became king of Jerusalem, and how long did he reign? Because the atheist who tries to look for contradictions doesn't understand the chronicling and everything else and how it works. We take a look at this one. Because in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 8, let's go there. 2 Kings 24, verse 8. And Je- uh, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months. And his mother's name was uh, Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. All right, so it says it's 18. So in 2 Kings 24, verse 8, it says he was 18 years old. In 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Verse 9. Jehoiakim was eight years old when he began to reign 
and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. So it says in Kings that he was 18 and he reigned for three months. In 2 Chronicles 36, it says he was eight years old and he reigned three months and ten days. Okay? So which is it? Jehoiakim. When it uh, was uh, was he 18 or 8? Did he reign 3 months or 3 months 10 days? Is there a contradiction? Is it this one or this one or how does this work? How does this line up? Let's take a look. Now Understanding that there are no contradictions in the word of God and that if we slow down, do the study, pay attention to specific words using the three points of Bible study, interpretation, application, demonstration, the what, the how, the why, and seeing how it's said, how it's being said, the specific words, the pictures, and the images, the cross-referencing, doing the study, slowing down, reading the whole context, not cherry-picking, and understanding there are no contradictions because the clear interprets the unclear. We then take a look and see... According to this uh, one site, looking up, doing research on this one, how do we explain this? We see that most modern translators speculate that the Masoretic text is an error. Many think that there are contradictions, but we know that there aren't. And because of this, and and we take a look though at Jehoiakim became co-regent, co-regent, co-regent with his father Jehoiakim over judah at age eight second chronicles 36 verse 9 and became the ruler in jerusalem at age 18 second kings 24 verse 8 the young age at which jehoiakim became co-regent is not surprising since his father's interest would have been to secure an heir in the face of imminent babylonian invasion jehoiakim's co-regency of 10 years corresponds perfectly with his father Jehoiakim's reign of 11 years. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 5. Moreover, as soon as the Babylonian invasion looms into the picture, Chronicles begins to use the phrase king over Judah and Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 36 verses 4 and 10. The phrase is never used in Kings or in Chronicles prior to to the Babylonian invasion, seeing the separation, the split in the states. Prior to the Babylonian invasion, there was no need to differentiate the king of Jerusalem from the king of Judah. However, as the Babylonians came and instituted their rule, the king of Jerusalem was no longer the default king of the rest of Judah. Thus, Chronicles begins to use the phrase, king over Judah and Jerusalem to indicate a ruler who reigned over both Jerusalem and Judah. This point is significant in regards to ascertaining the total length of Jehoiakim's time in office. Although 2 Kings 24.8 and 2 Chronicles 36.9 say that he reigned in Jerusalem for three months, that does not exclude the possibility of him co-reigning over Judah for the past 10 years. Since his father was the sole regent over Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar's regime, 2 Kings 24.1, Jehoiakim did not have authority over Jerusalem despite having co-regency over Judah. 
the seeming contradiction between 2 Kings 24.8 and 2 Chronicles 36.9 is a testament of the confusing political scene of the time rather than an error of the Masoretic text. As we see, as the differences as, as is reigning, and then Babylon, Babylonian armies come, and they're fighting, and they see separation of the states, it changes the time he reigned over here, but over this one he did for a little while as well. So we see, and plus the co-reigning with his father, and being uh, as his father was uh, getting him prepared to reign, as we see, so it's not a contradiction, but it's that as all the uh, the 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 politics of the time and we see uh, the reigning with his father the babylonian invasion all these things we take all this in into into understanding uh he was eight years old we get to reign with his father then he was 18 when he took throne this is not a contradiction it's not a contradiction but it's understanding of the of the difficulties of chronicling with all of these differences all these, these things coming in does this make sense do you see that you understand that It's not a contradiction. Some of these are a bit more confusing, a bit more difficult, but as we understand is what it says, when we pay attention to this and uh, how these things work and put all scripture together, understanding the whole stories and the details of them, then it starts to make sense. It's not a contradiction. It can become a contradiction in our mind if we're not studying it out properly. Okay, here's uh, another one. I will get to yours, Mia. Don't worry. We'll take a look at that. Um, here's another one. So again, I had, had individuals asking these questions because they believe they're contradictions and thus proofs of the corruption of the Bible and all this. If they're looking for contradictions, so they're making stuff up. Again, as we see, a lot of these are just seeing the difference between the, the chronicling of the person in Samuel or Kings versus a overall general chronicling as you see in the book of first and second chronicles we have to understand how how samuel and kings are generally more regarding the individual of the direct of what's going on chronicles is the overall generalization of, of bringing in everything okay so here's one here's one more uh so as we take a look uh, at this, uh, the chief of the mighty men of David lifted up his spear and killed how many men at one time? So in this one battle that David was in and his valiant mighty men, and they lift up their spear and they started fighting, how many people did the mighty men of David kill? Second Samuel 23 verse 8, 800? Or 300 in First Chronicles 11.11. So which is it? Let's go take a look. 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel. And verse. 2 uh, Samuel chapter 23 verse 8. So 2 Samuel 23, verse 8, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains, the same was Adino the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. Okay. 
or First Chronicles. First Chronicles and chapter 11. And verse 11. First Chronicles 11, 11. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had, Jashobim and Hakmonite, the chief of the captains, he lifted up his spear against 300 slain by him at one time. Okay, so which is it? 800 or 300? Well, again, if we use the three points, paying attention to everything, interpretation, application, demonstration, understanding there are no contradictions, paying attention to the specific words, the, the, the meanings, and all these things, cross-referencing. Okay, let's take a look. Uh, in Joshua, man, these names sometimes. Josheb Basheshbeth. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. He was the first of the three great heroes. The Bible has the translation captains. Captains, literally. Third men. The second man is the armor bearer. You understand that when people in certain positions understand how the culture works, when someone is of a high renown, they're not standing there all by themselves holding all their armor and everything themselves. You have the guy like Goliath and his shield bearer. So in the same thing in the culture, you have the, these individuals and one will carry a spear for the guy. And there'll be another one who'll carry the shield for the guy. They're armor bearers who go with as like a group with this one guy who's the champion. So as we see in this, the second man is the armor bearer, while the third man of a king is his personal guard agent who is ready to fulfill any wish of the king in times of war. David had three third men. These three great captains were Joshebed, Bathshebeth, verse 8, Eleazar, the son of Dodo, verse 9, and Sama, verse 11. Josheb Bathshebeth was the mightiest of them. He was victorious over 800 enemies at one time and became their neutral leader, chief of the three captains. So he's talking about different guys, not the same guy. Because it says, well, the, the chief of the captains, it was, it, it, it had this name, the chief of the captains. No, he had multiple men. He had three guys that stood with him that were shield bearers and all this stuff who fought and defended the king and they were in charge. And it's talking about different guys. And one killed 800, another killed 300. They're the valiant men, the, the bodyguards of the king. So it's not it's not a contradiction. You gotta understand culture, you gotta understand how things work, and you gotta search it out and study it and understanding at the same time there's no contradictions. Does that make sense? You see that? And if we take a look at this in 1 Chronicles 11, 11, and this is the number of the mighty men, plural, whom David had. Jashobim and Hakmonite, the chief of the captains. So we see men, mighty men. He had bodyguards, plural, captains. There's And there were three of them. 
One killed 800, one killed 300. Okay. Almost done. Two more. <clears throat> All right, so here we go. And after the great battle with the Philistines, when King David finished a great battle with the Philistines, you know the story. When King David brought the Ark of the Covenant that they took from the Philistines, they brought the Ark of the Covenant. Now, when, when did David bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? Before defeating the Philistines? Or after defeating the Philistines? Because if we take a look at, we're not going to read the whole thing, is because in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 6, 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 6, it says after, which seemed to indicate after the battle. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and 14, it seems to indicate before the battle of the Philistines. So which is it? Is it before the battle or after the battle with the Philistines that he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? So this is how the question was actually posed to me. If we take a look at 2 Samuel 5 and 6, it says after in 1 Chronicles 13 and 14, it says before. So when did David bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? Before or after the battle with the Philistines? Well, the question itself is a misrepresentation of the texts. The sequence was that David occupied Jerusalem. And having done so, if you read the whole texts, and having done so, after a while, he decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. While attempting to do so, the Ark overbalanced remember it was being brought in the in the cart with being pulled by oxen and it was going along the bumpy road and the ark of the coven overbalanced because the oxen shook the cart and remember you uh, the man yuza put his hand out to steady the ark of the covenant and because he touched it and he wasn't allowed to do that he was struck dead by god and therefore they saw what they were doing they were bringing it wrongly and this wasn't right and disrespectful so there was a house right there of a priest of a priest of god so they took the ark and they put it in the man's house and Uzzah put out his hand to steady it was killed and the ark was then placed at the house of obed edom the the gittite for three months while the ark was at the house of obed edom the philistines attacked israel while the ark was there it was it was on its way got sidetracked philistines came Philistines attacked Israel, were defeated, and then afterwards we see them finishing up with the ark and bringing it to, to Jerusalem finally in prop in the proper respect. The problem comes from a superficial reading of the texts in 2 Samuel 5 and 6 and assuming that the textual order is a chronological order and implies one thing when the text in 1 Chronicles shows more clearly the sequence of events.
So it's not a contradiction. It's just if you would actually read the story properly and not just jump to assumptions with, with the deliberate mindset of trying to find error. But if you actually read it properly, you see, no, it's not a contradiction. Make sense? So there you go. Okay. <sighs> Last one. Last one. So years ago, I was in a, a debate with atheists. And this is yet another one that was brought up by an atheist who clearly did not understand the Bible because they, they say they read the Bible. Well, I've read the Bible. I've read the Bible a hundred times. No, you did not. Uh, you think you have, but in your speed reading, without an actual desire of pay, uh, to pay attention to what you're reading, you're only getting a base summarization of familiarity. You're familiar with these things, but you're not actually studying them because you don't want to because you hate it. So you're just they're doing a superficial gleaning, uh, getting a summarization familiarity. You're not actually studying. But in this, I was asked this question. You know the story of Noah and the ark, when God told Noah to get all the animals and bring them up to the ark and, and all this, remember that? Well, the question that was posed to me was, how many pairs of clean animals did God tell Noah to take into the ark? All right. Because in Genesis chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says two. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 2, it says seven. But in the last instruction, only two pair went into the ark in Genesis 7, verses 8 and 9. So which is it? Two, seven, or two? Which is it? It said two over here, it said seven over here, but it seems only two went into the ark, so which is it? Well, if we take a look, paying attention to the specific words of what is being said, how it's being said, cross-referencing, doing the study, paying attention to the specific words of all the words, sentence structure, grammar, everything, then we take a look at what it says. In Genesis chap, uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Let's take a look. Genesis chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Genesis 6, 19 and 20. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. I'm just going to help you out in this. Now remember what I said. Paying attention. What did you not hear? What did you not hear in Genesis 6 verses 19 and 20? There's, there's a, a phrase missing. There's a word missing. Something that's not said in that one. Because if we go over to Genesis 7, verse 2, 
Of every clean beast thou shalt take thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. So again, just like the last question, it's a deliberate ignorance of not paying attention to the text and not paying attention to what's being said and what's not being said. Because in Genesis 6, the specific wording is clean. In Genesis 6, it just says, And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark. It doesn't say clean. But in Genesis 7, it says of every clean beast. Now, what does it mean by clean? Fit for sacrifice. Like sheep. So the others, like lions and rhinoceros or whatever, two. But sheep, goats, and those that be used for sacrifice, seven. That's what it means. There's specific wording. Clean beasts. Those that are accepted by God for sacrifice, and when God gives the command after the flood is ended. Those that will be safe and clean to eat as well. Sacrifice and eating. And it says they went in two and two, meaning they went in two at a time. They went into the ark two at a time, and not only two pair went in. Not only two pair went in. I mean, they would go in two by two, not just only two. They went in two and two, meaning they went in two at a time, and not only two pair went in. This is a major superficial reading with intent to try to twist scripture to find an error that just shows the intent of the questioner to try to invalidate the word of god so there you go so going back to the beginning granted granted that due to most modern Bible translations which deliberately omit verses, omit words, change words, change context, uh, change the meanings of words, and, and omit full-on passages, has created what seems to be errors. But that is purely due to people today messing with the Bible in the first place because they don't like what it says. And they think, they feel, they believe it should say this instead. But is it is it wrong or arrogant to believe in the inerrancy of the word of God? Is it wrong in some way? Is it an error? Is it wrong to believe that the word of God is inerrant? No. No, it's not. If you truly believe in Almighty God and His Holy Word, that like He said, how you preserve it unto all generations, and it's above His very name, He's going to keep it and, and protect it and preserve it. If you believe in His Holy Word and have true faith that He laid it out for us in the way that it is, if you truly believe that God cannot lie, and that He will give understanding and wisdom to all that, that ask, then Christianity is more than just a religion, but is now a true believing live faith. I do not believe i categorically do not believe there are any contradictions in the word of god and i have sh and as i've shown by the ones that i've already answered over time that, that there are that there are clarifications and answers to be found and i have to say 
the so-called errors and contradictions of scripture are pretty petty objections. The full majority of them, the majority of the so-called contradictions are just simple misunderstandings of the Hebrew practice of chronicling. Where Chronicles 1 and 2 takes in the full overview of the scene, the full overview of the story, full overview of the family and family lines, and the other books like Samuel and Kings, which are referenced by Chronicles, are focused on the individual lives and events as a more of a first-person type of account. And other so-called contradictions are either just complete twists of scripture by the questioner, or just flat-out refusals to read the whole context to see what exactly is being said. In any case, none of the ob objections are real contradictions, but are rather attempts to find error where there is none, because the questioner does not want to believe that it is the real word of God. Take the passage and look it up in the Greek interlinear, the Hebrew interlinear. Do the word study. Back up. Go over again slowly. Pay attention to the full context. Look up commentaries on the passages. Personally, I love Strong's or Matthew Henry's commentaries for research in this kind of thing. Take a look and see what they have to say. Or do a biblical verse comparison by looking up all the verses and passages throughout Scripture that talk about the topic. Most often than not, it completely clarifies the subject right away by showing you something that you may have missed. There, there are only contradictions in the Bible if you want there to be contradictions. And in this case, the error is on the questioner due to blatant arrogancy to misrepresent the word of God by refusing to look it up because they want to try to show the error of faith. Read the Bible. Study it out properly first. Read the whole context to understand what it is you're reading. Superficial generic reading will not suffice. Focus and concentrate on the passages and you will see the truth. If you are still having trouble, then ask God for wisdom. Especially in this day and age, there is literally no reason for this sort of blatant ignorance. Simply googling the question, even will bring up list after list of people that have already answered all the objections. Read the Bible, study it, pray, meditate on the word of God, and wisdom will be given by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man, the unsaved man, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. There you go. So I hope that has helped. If you have any comments, questions, issues, insights on that, please, by all means, go ahead, ask away. All right, so going down through, I know we had one question here by Mia. I just want to double check, make sure there isn't anything I missed here. 
Okay. <clears throat> All right, so um, as Purely says, keeping in mind, of course, that God preserved the Bible and, and trusting that, I'd rather a non-controlled work with, uh, with many variants as for comparison than one controlled copy source. Yeah. And again, it's up to you how you go about this, but the, the overall point is that uh, as we t take a look, as I have mentioned, and it has been proven, uh, there are some, some versions that are dangerous. Some are more dangerous than others. That's in that some have been corrupted more than others. Uh, we got to pay attention and going back to the original Greek and Hebrew. Now, some uh, recommendations that I would have is uh, using a Greek and Hebrew keyword study Bible. Fantastic resource. A Greek and Hebrew keyword study Bible. And if you don't want to get the book, you can you can get uh, apps, uh, study apps uh, for the desktops called eSword eSword, which is a free downloadable resource which shows you the Greek and Hebrew and all that fantastic source for studying or you can get it for the app on your on a mobile device called MySword and you, if you google it up you'll find the site on the MySword the eSword uh, site and you can download them for free. Uh, Blue Letter Bible is also a fantastic resource as well. Another Bible uh, research uh, tool I'd recommend is the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. The Thompson Chain Reference Bible where it doesn't reference commentaries or any other sources, but rather in the margins, it will have a multiplicity of other scriptural passages that uh, reference the part that you're reading. So it teaches you how to reference and combine scripture with scripture, really dividing the word of truth. Okay. Uh, going down through. All right. Um, so I ha I'll get to Mia's in one second. Uh, uh, Ryoku has a question. Why do you call people who don't believe in once saved, always saved works-based salvationists? Because they are. If you don't believe that that salvation once given cannot be, uh, cannot be taken away, if you don't believe in eternal security and you believe that salvation can be lost, taken away, or recanted, you by definition are believing that you have to do something in order to keep main, uh, or maintain to keep earned again your salvation. Your salvation by definition is then by something that uh, an observance of you. If uh, as I have to make sure to do this right, keep this, hold to this, or else I'll be lost. That is a form of works. And it's not by grace alone, but 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 by uh, it's more of like a contract between you and God to achieve the outcome rather than just the covenant of promise of God. It's we're under covenant, not contract. If you do not believe once saved, always saved, you are by definition a works-based salvationist because you believe that something of you is required to earn, to gain, or maintain, to keep. This is what it is. People can argue that and deny that all they want. Uh, they just don't. They literally then just don't understand what it is that they themselves are believing. All right. All right. So if we take a look at Mia's question, I know I went over this one before. In uh, Matthew 1, 16 and Luke 2, 23, it refers to Joseph as uh, uh, by different names. Let's take a look at them. Matthew 1, 16. Now we take a look at this in Matthew 1 16 and Jacob begat Joseph the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ all right 
And the other one that we want is in Luke chapter 2. And verse 23, Luke chapter 2, verse 23. Oh, no, that's the wrong, not Luke 2, 23. Or am I just looking at it wrong? I think you gave me the wrong reference. I'm trying to find it. One second. Three twenty-three. That's why I couldn't find it in two. Three twenty-three. No problem. Okay, now if you take a look at this, now your question <clears throat> uh, I've been told that this is a contradiction. Matthew says father of Joseph is and Luke writes it's Heli. Okay. So in Luke 3:23, Jesus himself began uh, to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Okay. And Matthew 1.16, I should have put a bookmark in there. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So it's regarding Joseph's father. Uh, the one says Jacob, the other says Heli. All right, and if we go over, oops, went too far. My pen. Uh, Heli, Haley, definition Heli, ascending the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Um, Hebrew origin Heli, that is Eli, an Israelite Heli. Uh, that is in Luke. Now, if we go to Matthew. Oop, went way too far. Matthew and what one sixteen. Okay, the uh, the one as we see in uh, doing a reference of this, the New Testament, Old Testament is written in Hebrew, New Testament is written in Greek, and we do understand. And we have to do uh, and we have to take this and understand that uh, there are no contradictions in the word of God using the three points of the Christian faith interpretation application demonstration the what the how the why and understanding these differences we understand as well that during this time is the Roman occupation of Israel and we see there is they Romanize uh, the Greek uh, the, the Greek term and we see the one as is is Hebrew the other uh, uh, is actually the Greek definition, the Greek name. So we see as uh, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, Jacob. And then over here in Luke, it says, Heli. That's Greek. 
So the one is the Hebrew name, the other is a Greek name. And we do see this with many of the people in the New Testament as we see a, a Hebrew and a Greek name. As you see, for like for example, Saul, Saul is the Hebrew name, Paul is the Greek name. And uh, this uh, happened with a number of people. It's not a contradiction, but rather, as we see, as one is referring to Hebrew, the other is referring to Greek. So I hope that makes sense. It's not a contradiction. People can try to pick at these things and try try to make these as contradictions. But if we cross cross examine these things and take a look at the culture, take a look at the time, what's going on, what's being presented, what's being said. And, and take a look at others uh, who have multiple names. Uh, so how is that, how can one individual have multiple names? Well, in some, in some uh, instances where we actually take a look, one is, uh, as it says, and so-so was of this family. Well, sometimes it's referring to the father line, sometimes it's referring to the mother line. And others referring to the Hebrew name or the Greek name or whatever. But it's not a contradiction. It's just we have to take a look at the, at the source of what they're referring to. What they're referring to. One refers to Hebrew, refers to Greek, refers to the father, refers to the mother, or on and on. But again, it's never a contradiction. It's only a contradiction in the mind if they're in the reader if they want it to be a contradiction. All right. So I hope that makes sense. All right. Uh, any other comments, questions, issues, insights, please, by all means, go ahead. Ask away. Be glad to hear from you. Okay. Uh, Purely says those belonging to the enemy can find uh, verses they're looking for to advocate for evil. Yeah, they'll always do that kind of thing. Always twisting the words of God, twisting the mind of God. Uh, call it calling into question things that God has said and done in an attempt to justify their, their God hate, their Christ hate, their Bible hate, all of that, uh, making up history even. It's just crazy. The one, the one thing that drives me up the wall, it, to me, when I hear it, it's literally like fingernails on a chalkboard. Fingernails on a chalkboard, I can't stand it. It's like screeching metal. It just drives you nuts. I hate it with a passion. When I hear people say, well, well, the Bible was written by man and the Catholic Church canonized our Bibles and it was just compiled by those men and they, they had to figure it out. So, of course, there's going to be missing texts, missing errors and uh, all contradictions. Uh, they, the Catholic Church canonized it. No, they didn't. You need to understand that. That is an absolute pathological psycho propaganda lie the catholic church did not canonize our bibles in any way shape or form the council of nicaea and trinities did not get together to figure out our doctrines and to figure out our about they did not if you actually go and do the research, look it up. What actually was those about? The Council of Nicaea and the Council of Trent were councils of the Roman Catholic religion, the Roman Catholic Church of their doctrines, their books, of their beliefs, not ours. The Catholic Church never was, is not, and never will be a part of the born-again Christian faith. They were an offshoot 
creation by the by the Roman uh, Emperor Constantine in the 300s AD created the Roman Catholic religion set up bishops and all the rest of them and then they they set up their own councils to figure out their own beliefs and to 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 fix it, figure out their own books of their own religion had nothing to do with us that the Catholic Church has nothing to do with the born again Christian faith they are their own thing they made their own books of their own councils. The Council of Nicaea was not Christian, it was Catholic. Trent was not Christian, it was Catholic. So you need to understand that. That the born-again Christians have always existed outside of the Catholic Church. That the born-again Christian faith goes back to Christ. Catholicism goes back to Constantine in the 300s. Does not go back to Christ. But Constantine stole ideas and beliefs from the Christians and combined it with all kinds of other pagan things. That's why, for example, take a look at Catholicism. Uh, uh, they have a saint for everything. A saint for hiccups, a saint for burps, a saint for headaches, and a saint for lost items, and a saint for colds, and a saint for this, and a saint for that, and a saint for this, and a saint for that, for everything. You know where they got that from? Constantine took the Greek pantheon of the gods and renamed them after saints instead. So that's why there used to be a god for literally everything. And he just stole that, renamed them as saints, so now there's a saint for everything. Constantine was a religious thief. That's all that was. But yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I digress. Okay. Purely says, yes, that's a cause for my ears and nose to bleed right there. Stop repeating that lie, people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Jacqueline has a question. And we do got to wrap this up soon. We've been going for two hours. I'm starting to burn out. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Oh, went past it. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Okay. Uh, Jacqueline says question. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Let's see what it says. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Okay. I know it says we have become new, but pastors in my area say become, becoming, why, if you know they say becoming, becoming, why is this becoming, as if we have something else to do? All things, behold, all things are become new. Oh, I see, yeah. No, it doesn't say becoming. It doesn't say becoming. It says become. It's a present tense, an immediate thing. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you become new. Well, is it is salvation a process? Or is it instantaneous? Old things are gone. The sin, the condemnation, the judgment, the old life of the, of the old man is gone. The new has come. You've become new. 
It's not becoming. Becoming it, it, it denotes a, a process. Salvation is not a process. But Pastor John Piper, for example, who's a heretic, I used to uh, I used to like listening to him until uh, recently I came across some messages of his where he actually teaches, believes, and affirms that salvation is a process, that salvation is something you earn at the end of your life. That's blasphemy. That's heresy. That's false gospel. But no, it doesn't say becoming. It says becomes, as in it's an immediate thing. You become. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a Christian. You become new. So again, we go back to the Greek and all these things. See what it says. And again, what does the Bible teach on salvation itself? That salvation is instantaneous. It's by grace through faith and not of works. So anyone who would try to change this, even by, by, by stating that it's becoming, is in error and is affirming a false gospel then of a process of salvation, which is heresy. Do you see that? And so yeah, that's... They would have to take a look at what scripture itself says. And anyone who would say anything different is wrong. Salvation is instantaneous. We become as in an immediate, an, an immediate thing, an immediate change. It's not a process. So there you go. Um, okay, so Mia has a question of how many signs. Okay, Mark 8, 12. I'm going to need a bunch of bookmarks here. All right. Mark. Oh, I keep flipping past it. Okay, Mark chapter 8, verse 12. And Matthew 12, 39. Matthew 12. John chapter 2 verse 11 things you don't see behind the scene getting ready for broadcast I'm just like this getting all this stuff everything ready it takes a while to find it all okay so John 2 let's put one in there and I'll get to the rest of it okay John 2 11 okay so let's go back so the question is uh, okay can you please look up these references Oh, but I didn't get these wrong. I double-checked them. No worries. Okay, question is, how many signs? Okay, so what is it talking about? So Matthew 12, 39. The answer is said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, the context of this one. We have to go one at a time. All right. In paying attention to the context... And Jesus talking to the Pharisees and talking and talking about uh, what's going to happen. Um, and if we back up Matthew 12. Um, okay, and back at verse 31. Before I say to you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. Okay. Uh, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye be evil? Speak good things, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. 
a, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of his evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words shalt thou be justified, and by thy words shalt thou be condemned. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Now what are they getting at? Well, uh, uh, we see, see a sign, uh, a, a proof, an evidence that uh, that you are who you say you are. That you are who you say you are. That's what that means. So Jesus teaching about the gospel and about salvation and, and uh, what justifies as justified by confession of faith is what he's talking about. And certain scribes of the Pharisees demand an evidence, a sign, a proof from Jesus that he is who he says he is. Now, what is the proof of the proof of him uh, that he is who he says he is? And Jesus answers, says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what was the sign of the prophet Jonah? What was it? Now, this is where you also need to understand is a lot of people get the story of Jonah wrong. All right. It is commonly believed by many professed Christians, even that Jonah survived, that Jonah lived, that he was alive in the belly of the whale. No. Go read it. He died. He, he flat out died. It flat out says he did. It, is, it talks about how he cried out from the depths of Sheol. That's the place of the dead. He drowned in the waters and the whale swallowed him up and he was in the whale's belly for three days, three nights and the whale spit him up. This is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a foreshadowing of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we take a look at this, as, as when the Lord Jesus on the cross, when he died, his spirit went down to Sheol, to paradise. In Sheol, there are two places. The place of torment on one side, hell, and the other side across a great gulf was paradise, Abraham's bosom. Jesus went down to Sheol, to paradise, and he preached across the gulf to the spirits in prison. Is there, uh, there for uh, three days, and then he came back. So the sign, the sign of who he is proving flat out the final nail in the coffin that proves who he is is the resurrection of jesus christ because if we cross-reference this over in corinthians as paul states if christ be not raised we are of all men most miserable we are yet in our sins because anyone can die, anyone can be tortured, anyone can be nailed to the cross, anybody can be buried. But it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proves fundamentally who he is. The resurrection. So the sign, the sign of the proof of the Messiah is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 12, verse uh, 38 and 39. Okay? All right. So the next one is Mark 8, 12. All right. And Mark 8, 12, and he's uh, the same thing. In verse 11, the Pharisees came forth and began to question with them, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. So you see, as they didn't believe that they should prove it, prove who you are. Go do something. Do a miracle. Do something. 
Jesus never performed uh, for entertainment or by temptation. He never did that. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and says, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Now some say it's a contradiction because Jesus said over here, what about Jonah? He gave a sign back in that generation. The sign that was given was back then with those by Jonah. That's the sign. No, no new sign. No sign will be given to this generation. So it's in the it's in the language. It's in the words. This generation. So, not a contradiction, but he's referring to no, nothing new will be given to you. I'm not giving you any new thing. There was already a sign given. No new thing will be given to this generation. That's what Jesus means by that. Okay? And if we go over to John chapter 2, verse 11. Um... Okay, so we're changing contexts here. John chapter 2, verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Um, yeah, but the, the wedding in Cana was, was the first miracle that Jesus did in his ministry. At, at the beginning of his ministry, the Jesus' first miracle. Okay, so in chapter 4, verse 54. Uh, and this again, uh, okay, we'll take a look. Uh, and nobleman says, Sir, come down ere my child die. So uh, John chapter 4, verse 49. The nobleman says, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going and going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. That, so the healing of the son, same same hour, Jesus said, Thy son liveth. He knew he believed in his whole house. Verse 54, and this, this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Okay, so we see first miracle was turning water to wine. Second miracle is uh, the healing of this uh, nobleman's uh, son. Okay, and chapter 6, verse 2. Okay, so I see where you're getting at, about the signs and things. Okay, now, uh, um, yeah. So chapter 6, verse 2, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Okay, so... It's not contradictions in these things, and we've got to understand what he means by signs and wonders and miracles and these things. Now, the context is that's why I backed up and read the full portion and not just the verse. You got to read the full portion because Jesus over there, he's not talking just about miracles, he's not just talking about miracles and these kinds of things. Rather, in context of signs, as when he was talking about Pharisees, it's not just working a, a single miracle but is rather an an evidence a proof of uh who he is as the christ messiah because elijah worked miracles other prophets elisha worked miracles they're not the messiah uh the, the apostles worked miracles they're not the messiah so what then would be the sign of the proof of him being the christ messiah not just working miracles many people worked miracles 
but rather a sign as we see uh, as written down as a sign as testified by God as a proof of the Christ Messiah as Jesus says as Jonah for example what happened to him is a sign and evidence of a foreshadowing picture image of a proof of how we would know the Christ Messiah as Isaiah chapter 53 as it says, his days will be prolonged, meaning he'll be resurrected. Well, what's another uh, passage that references the resurrection? Jonah. How long was he in the ground? Three days. And then he was resurrected. So we take this with Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. On the third day, he will rise again. So that's what it's talking about. Uh, signs and miracles um, are not the same. They're not always the same. Uh, Though a sign can be like a miracle, but it's a sign, which means a, it, like as you see, a, a road sign. It's to point you to something. Uh, to point you, to direct you to something. As, the, as what happened with Jonah, yes, it's a miracle that he survived. A miracle that that happened. But it's more than just that. It's an actual foreshadowing. It's bigger. It's a sign of a proof text of something else. To, that, that's speaking about something else. Jesus just healing the lepers was a miracle, not a sign. But we can actually apply sign upon this as we, well, who has power to turn people uh, uh, from lepers to being healed again? Well, it's a sign of his deity. But, a, but what's a sign that speaks of down, down the road that could show something we could look forward to as a proof of the Christ Messiah, the resurrection? So you see that. Um, I hope that makes sense. Uh, Mia says, this, the first of Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. Right. Exactly. And this disciples believed on him that this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come. Second miracle. Miracle. If we actually take a look in the Greek, uh, certain texts will actually have different words. This is why it's important to go back to the Greek and Hebrew. That it's a second miracle. Now, it's a miracle that he did uh, uh, to help others, but also a sign token of his glory, of uh, uh, because showing who he is. But what is the ultimate sign of proving he is the Christ Messiah? A sign, like a road sign. It says, uh, so uh, this far down the road, you'll find you know, this offshoot. A sign that speaks of something. This is what that's referring to. And no sign shall be given than the sign of Jonah. This uh, again, uh, because the Pharisees wanted Jesus to do something to prove who he is. But again, like I said, prophets and apostles, others have worked miracles. That doesn't prove them to be the Christ Messiah. So what, uh, so what was given, what was given as a sign, token, proof uh, that Jesus would be the Christ Messiah? Jonah. So there you go. Hope that makes sense. But again, not a contradiction. But again, it's in the it's in the language, it's in the words, it's in the specifics of this. Uh, again, we have to take a look at context of what Jesus is referring to and what's happening over here. These other miracles were signs of his glory and evidences of his glory and of his person. But what is a sign of being the Christ Messiah? That's what Jesus was talking about with the Pharisees. Of, of his messiahship uh, uh, being the his christship his be, being the christ so there you go all right 
Yeah, and uh, Mia says, it's like the prophet Isaiah, the Lord himself should give you a sign that the virgin will give birth. Exactly. There you go. So it's, what's the sign uh, that, uh, that the, the Messiah has come? Virgin birth. Okay, now that's, that's arrival. The sign of, of the arrival. What's the sign of the identity? The resurrection. So we see the sign of the arrival. We see the sign of the work. And then we see the sign of the identity. So the, these, there's specific ones set specifically for those things. And there are all other things that Jesus did that proved his glory. But these are the main ones we look at that, that specifically identify arrival, work, and identity. Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, Micah 5, 2, and Isaiah 53. So yeah, there you go. And as you see, as another proof of, of his being the Messiah Christ, again, as you see Jonah, as it, uh, what happened with him in three days in the in the belly the belly of the whale and he came back to life as jesus was in was in the in the tomb three days and came back to life got it thank you awesome good did my job okay so with that we got to wrap that up there we've been going for a while two hours 25 minutes fantastic all right so with that i hope this has been a help a comfort and a blessing to you as some homework for you this is a bit of a deeper one a bit of a heavier weightier one so i hope this has been a help to you um take down the notes research these things out look it up yourself see what it says as there are no contradictions in the word of god everything has an explanation there is an answer there is an explanation if we would just search it out just pay attention cross-reference pray about it ask the lord for wisdom uh, knowing there are no contradictions there's no lost text lost books lost manuscripts there's no contradictions the word of god is complete and it's trustworthy trust in the lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding but in all thy ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths so with that god bless you so if you appreciate these studies please give this a like give us a thumbs up make sure you subscribe hit notification bell icon so you know we put up new videos and check out all our other videos we get tons and tons of other content and goodies if you'd like to know more about defending the word of god and standing for the lord and apologetics all the rest of this please check out our playlist proving the bible true in that playlist proving the bible true there's tons and tons of videos on archaeological discoveries to prove the bible true scientific discoveries scientific proofs and all kinds of other stuff plus this video will also be tagged into that playlist so make sure you check it uh, check out everything and share those around anybody has questions and stuff check it out so with that please give us a like and a subscribe as well as check out our website christiancoffeetime.ca links to all our other platforms and goodies as well as free downloadable gospel track pdfs and e-tracks so you can email them as well we got tons of goodies there and tons of stuff make sure you check it all out and get the word out there let other people know uh, where they can go to study and learn the word of god so with that god bless you folks God bless all those who love our Lord God, Jesus Christ. God bless all those who love his holy word. Hope to see you again. And as always, if I don't see you again, I'll see you in the sky. God bless.